Well, hey, welcome to First Church. It's good to see everybody, especially you guys who are here in person, but we also want to welcome in our online family. We have tons of people worshiping with us from all over the country, all over the globe. In fact, I just heard we have Heidi from Mexico or in Mexico who's worshiping with us as well today. So if you're here in person, would you put your hands together and let's welcome in our online family. We are honored to have you joining us here today. And before we get started in the message, I just want to remind everybody, next Sunday, we are kicking off our Your Invited series. And I cannot wait. We're going to kick it off next Sunday with a tailgate party. And so we're going to have a bunch of extra stuff next Sunday, games, giveaways. We're going to have some special guests. And we want to challenge you to wear your favorite team colors. So wear a football jersey, wear uh, some gear, whatever you want to do. And I want to see for real if we have more or OSU or OU fans in this congregation. I, everybody always says it's about half and half. Let's see, okay? So bring out your gear. We're going to have a fun time. But most importantly, make sure that you are inviting guests because this is what this series is all about. It's a great opportunity for us to invite guests and introduce them to the joy of heaven. So I can't wait for next week. But I'm especially excited about today as we wrap up our series, Clearing Hurdles. And I think this series has been extremely important. It's been very relevant for the day and age that we're living in because we live in a day where we face a whole lot of hurdles, but that's not new. That's been the case throughout human history. And as I've watched the Olympics a few weeks ago, it's over with now, but as I watched the Olympics and looked at the sport of hurdling, I just kept thinking, what an illustration about how life is. You know, if you're an athlete who runs hurdles, you come to expect hurdles. You know that they're coming. And so instead of panicking or going crazy whenever you see a hurdle in front of you, what do you do? You prepare for them. You're ready for them. And the same is true for us in life. It's a great illustration of our spiritual lives because we we face hurdles all the time. Life is full of hurdles. Whether we like it or not, life is full of hurdles. And so instead of panicking or freaking out whenever we deal with a hurdle, God tells us we can prepare for them. We can get ready for them. In fact, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, meaning you're going to face obstacles. You're going to face trouble. You're going to face hurdles. But take heart, I have overcome the world, meaning there's no hurdle too high for me to clear. And if you do life with me, Jesus says, I'll give you the strength and the wisdom that you need to face any hurdle that might be in front of you. And so we've talked about what it takes to prepare for the hurdles that we may face in life. But as we wrap up this series, I want to really hit on a key biblical truth that I think we've talked about before, but we need to emphasize before we wrap up this series, and it's this. Well, okay, don't be surprised. Be prepared. Yes, that's true. Go on to, to the very next one. Sorry. Being prepared for a hurdle doesn't mean it won't be a battle. So what Jesus is telling us is don't be surprised, be prepared, but just because you're prepared for a hurdle doesn't mean it won't be a battle, doesn't mean it won't be a struggle, doesn't mean it won't still be difficult at times. Because let's face it, the hurdles that we often deal with in life, they're a lot bigger and more intimidating than this hurdle right here. I joked last week about how I'm not going to try to clear one of these hurdles because I'm not trained to do it and I'm not prepared to do it. And so I would break my neck if I tried to clear this hurdle. But you know, there are times that I would rather try to overcome one of these hurdles than some of the emotional hurdles I've had to deal with. Some of the psychological hurdles 
spiritual hurdles, physical hurdles, mental hurdles, you name it. Some of the hurdles that we face in real life, they're intimidating and they're big and they can scare us. And there are days that I would try to clear one of these rather than face the hurdles that are in front of me in life. I don't know about you, but there are times that I, that I just want to hide and not go up against the hurdles that are along my path. But the Bible tells us that we don't have to hide. The Bible tells us that even though hurdles that we, the hurdles we face may be a battle, we can still overcome them. Paul says in the book of Philippians, he says, forgetting what is behind and straining. Notice that word straining as if it's strenuous at times to run the race of life, but straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says it's strenuous at times. It's tough to run this race called life, but I keep my eyes focused on what they need to be focused on. I keep my eyes on Jesus. I keep my eyes on the prize, and I know if I do, he will get me home. But even with that, there are days where we still struggle. Paul struggled. Listen to what he says in the book of 2 Corinthians. He talks about his ministry in Asia, and he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed, beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life itself. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul talking, this great man of God who wrote like half our New Testament, and he's saying, there's a point in my life when I despaired of even life itself. There's a point when I felt completely overwhelmed. And if that can happen to the Apostle Paul, well, it can definitely happen to you and me. It can happen to the best of us. And it happens when we deal with hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. When we go through a season of life when we're just hit with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle and we overcome one and there's another one waiting for us, over time that can start to really wear us out, stress us out, deplete us of energy and get us down. My kids have been into building obstacle courses right now and I think it's because they've been watching the Olympics and if you've seen events like this one the steeplechase you know that it's kind of like an obstacle course not exactly but you run this race and it's not just you know trying to clear hurdles and obstacles and barriers but also you got to run through water and all sorts of stuff it's kind of crazy I mean you have to be in tip-top shape to be able to do something like this I didn't even know that the steeplechase was an Olympic event apparently it's been around for a long time but I didn't realize that till this past Olympics and so my kids were watching events like like this and they decided to build their own obstacle courses around our house and so they got out these stepping stones that somebody gave them a while back and they would put them out they're all different sizes you'd have to step on them or go around them depending on the race that day and they also got out toys like this huge uh, football blow-up thing and you had to run around it as well and then they got out other toys to make obstacles and they had a blast racing one another Alex my oldest typically won but still they had a blast racing one another but let me just ask you 
you parents or grandparents in the room or watching at home, do you guys ever have trouble with your kids leaving toys out? Anybody ever have trouble with that? Okay, yeah, you guys are laughing. You're not raising your hands, but I can tell because you're laughing. Yeah, well, one night they left out a bunch of these obstacles that they had set up. And so I got up early that morning because I had an early morning appointment and the lights are still off. I'm half asleep, you know, my alarm just went off. And so I'm walking through our house and I go to our hallway and this guy is standing out there and I think it's a person. And so, you know what I do? I tackle him. No, uh, not really. I let out a girl to scream. But still, you know, it scared me to death. And I thought, oh, it's just that blow-up thing. You know, I got to talk to the kids about putting up their toys. And then I turned to go in a different direction, and they left one of these out, and I tripped right over it, and I fell down. And so when Alex finally got up, I was like, buddy, you got to make sure you put up your toys because daddy almost uh, hurt himself. I mean, I tripped over this, and I could have really hurt myself bad. And Alex looked at me, and he goes, daddy, no pain, no gain. And I had to lovingly inform him that's not what that saying means, okay? (laughs) But you know, doesn't life often feel like an obstacle course? We have seasons where we get around one obstacle, one hurdle, and there's another one waiting. And when we go through those tough seasons, we can be on the brink of burning out, maybe even giving up on God's plan for our lives. And like I said, it can happen to the best of us. It happened to Paul. We just looked at that example in the New Testament. But it also happened to a guy in the Old Testament named Elijah. And we see him on the verge of burning out, on the verge of giving up on God's plan for his life in 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, that's where we're going to be today. And to give you some context, Elijah was known for being one of the greatest prophets. In fact, some people would argue he was the greatest of the prophets. He was an incredible man of God. And he had great faith, and God used him in some pretty significant ways. But Elijah comes on the scene during one of the most turbulent periods in Israel's history. See, Israel has had a long line of really, really bad and evil kings, and they've corrupted the nation. The people are corrupt. They're going in the opposite direction of God, and things aren't good. And even though they've had a long line of bad king after bad king after bad king, listen to the king who, listen what the Bible says about the king who's on the throne when Elijah starts to minister for God. It says this in 1 Kings 16, Ahab, who's king at the time, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Imagine having that reputation. You're the worst king in God's eyes. Imagine being known for being the most evil of all the kings. That's what Ahab is known for at this point in history He's an evil, evil, wicked man. But imagine being a citizen of Israel during this period. If you're a believer, if you're somebody who tries to live by faith in the one true God, you're in trouble because Ahab is going to be against you. And Elijah, he doesn't just have to live during this period of time. Elijah is called by God to be a prophet, which means he's going to have to confront King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel is queen, and she's even more evil than Ahab. And Elijah's going to have to go and confront these evil rulers. 
and say, you're not doing what God wants you to do, and if you don't change, there's going to be consequences. So that's what Elijah does. He goes and confronts Ahab and Jezebel, and they don't care what Elijah has to say. They don't take his warning seriously. In fact, what they decide to do is, okay, you're against us, we're going to kill you. And so basically, they try to kill Elijah, and for the next three and a half years or so, Elijah lives on the run. And Ahab and Jezebel, they set up trap after trap, you might say hurdle after hurdle, trying to get him. But during this time, as Elijah lives on the run, God is with him. And the highlight reel of all the stuff that God does in Elijah's life is pretty impressive. I mean, Elijah at one point prays for it not to rain, and God holds back the rain. It doesn't rain for like three years. I mean, at one point, Elijah does a tremendous miracle. He prays, and God brings somebody back from the dead. How cool is that? At another point, Elijah prays, and fire comes down from heaven. That was probably the pinnacle of his ministry career as he stands down 850 false prophets of Baal. And those false prophets, they try to light their own altar, but it doesn't work. And so Elijah prays to his God, the one true God, and God sends fire from heaven. How cool is that? And the altar is lit, and the prophets of Baal, false prophets are destroyed. At one point, Elijah is able to outrun a horse-drawn chariot for about 18 miles. God empowers him to do that. And then at another time, at another time Elijah prays for rain to return to the land, and God sends rain to the land. I mean, God did some impressive, incredible stuff through the life of Elijah. And Elijah, even though he experienced hurdle after hurdle, he also experienced win after win after win because God was with him. But at one point when Jezebel hears that all of her prophets, her false prophets have been defeated, after the Mount Carmel incident when fire came down from heaven, she's mad. And she sends this message to Elijah. I am going to kill you by this time tomorrow night. Nice lady, she really is. And we would think that Elijah hearing this would say, no big deal. I mean, you've been trying to kill me for three and a half years and God's been with me and look at everything that God's done. Big deal, bring it, Jezzy. You know, that's what you would think he would say. But that's not what happens. Look at what happens in the scripture. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. You ever prayed that before? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Now, Elijah's outward circumstances had not changed but his heart had. See, Elijah is still experiencing the exact same thing he's been experiencing for over three years. Jezebel and Ahab are trying to kill him. That hasn't changed. But something has changed within him. See, Elijah is at a breaking point. And he's not just down, he's depressed. So much so that he says, I've had enough, Lord. In other words, I can't do this anymore. I've been doing it for three and a half years. I can't do it anymore, Lord. I've had enough and I can't go on anymore. He's fried. 
He's burned out, tired, overwhelmed. He's ready to give up on God's plan. He's done. So much so that he says, God, I don't want to live another day. It's not just being down. He's depressed. And this passage might make some of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because we don't like to see God's servants suffering. And the fact that this is a great man of God who is really down and really discouraged and really depressed, that makes some of us feel really, really uncomfortable. And honestly, it's not a fun passage to preach on. But I think we need this passage. And I think we need this sermon. I think we need the honesty of this scripture because this scripture confronts a false belief that is in many Christian circles today. And that false belief, that Christian myth that exists in many circles today is that a true person of God, a true believer should never get down, should never feel bad, should never be discouraged, should never get depressed. And here's the thing, that view, though it does exist, it isn't biblical. I mean, look at this example of Elijah, a great man of God. Look at Paul, who we just mentioned, but there are tons of others whether it's Moses or David or Job, you name it. There are tons of examples in Scripture of great men and women of God who had a season of discouragement, who got down, borderline depressed or maybe full-fledged depressed. And what we need to know today is that being discouraged doesn't mean you're unspiritual. It means you're normal. Getting down doesn't mean that you're unspiritual. It just means you're human. Because we live in a fallen world. And if you never get down about the circumstances that we see in our world around us, then there might be a problem. Getting down isn't a sin. And when we do try to fake it and act like that we never do have bad days and we never do get down and we never do get discouraged and when we try to hide our depression instead of giving it to God, what ends up happening is we hurt our witness because we're lying to ourselves, we're lying to people around us and here's the thing, the watching world can see through a fake smile and they know when we're faking I remember when I was in Bible college, and I did my internship one summer at a church. I, we planned this huge event for the kids. It was gonna be one evening, and we had all this like blow up stuff and outside activities and paid a bunch of money for this to happen, and we were all excited for it, and the night came around, and the parents brought their kids, and we had a storm. I mean, it just downpoured. And so we moved some things inside, but there were some things we couldn't move inside, and we were all kind of bummed out that it rained. We still made do, and it was fine, but I was talking to one of the dads who brought his kid, and I'd gotten to know this dad a little bit. He had just started coming to church. He wasn't a believer yet, wasn't a follower of Jesus. Jesus yet, but he was a nice guy, and he was, and he really liked the church a lot, so I'm talking to him, and he looked at me, and he said, yeah, it just really stinks that it had to rain tonight, and I said, yeah, it's a bummer, isn't it, and this lady in the church overheard us talking. We weren't talking to her, but she overheard us talking, and she walked up, and she said, now, boys, it may be raining outside, but there's still sunshine in our souls, and I remember when she walked away, that dude looked at me, and he goes, what's up with her? Because it just seems so put on. 
so fake, and I'm not judging that woman. Maybe she meant well. I don't know her heart. But it's okay to own the fact that we're down. I had another person tell me, also wasn't a believer at the time, but he said, how come everybody on Christian television looks like they've had way too much sugar? And he said, I like to see Joel Osteen frown just one time. Now, again, I'm not judging Joel Osteen's heart, but the Bible says that when you're down, that's actually when you can draw close to God. Listen to what Psalm says. In Psalm 34, it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Guys, if you feel brokenhearted today, if you feel discouraged and down, the Lord is near. And if your spirit feels crushed today, he rescues those who feel crushed in their spirit. And there are a whole host of reasons why followers of Jesus might get down. I'm going to give you three here real fast. There are others, but here are th- probably three primary reasons. One, is, one, one reason is because of biochemical factors. See, God created our brains, for example, to produce this thing called serotonin. And sometimes our bodies don't produce enough of it. And the fact that we are low in serotonin, well, there's nothing more wrong with that than if our bodies were low in insulin. And so what God wants us to do is take care of our bodies. And so if you've been through a long, long season of discouragement or being down, depression, maybe what you need to do is seek out some medical help or some clinical counseling. God, God has provided those gifts for us. And he wants us to take care of ourselves. And I'm telling you right now, I know some godly, godly men and women, faithful, faithful men and women who've had some biochemical issues and they've sought help and they've trusted in God and God has renewed their spirit. So sometimes it's a biochemical issue. Sometimes it's due to our circumstances. Because here's the thing, God didn't create our bodies originally to go through long extended seasons of intense pressure and pain and stress. And so if you've been going through a long season of those things, then maybe what you need to do is examine your rhythm today. And you need to look at your life and say, what is it I need to cut out? What is it I need to change? What is it I need to tweak in my life right now? And maybe what you need to do is just slow down. Maybe what you need to do is sleep more, take a nap. Maybe you need to eat better. Maybe you need to exercise, spend more time with the people that you love. Get some Christian accountability around you. I don't know. But maybe what you need to do is just examine your life and say, hey, my circumstances aren't good, and if I don't change my circumstances, the environment around me, it's not going to end well. And then another reason why followers of Jesus sometimes get down is because of sinful consequences. It's not all the time, but sometimes that's the case. I mean, even godly people can sin, I know you're not shocked at that, right? And so when we sin and we ignore it or we hide it or we act like it's not a big deal, it can affect our physical bodies. See, our physicality is connected to our spirituality. The Bible teaches that. That's why one day Jesus is going to come back and our physical bodies will be raised and will be united with our spirits. Because we are both physical and spiritual creatures and our physicality is connected to our spirituality. And if you have some unchecked sin in your life, 
it will affect you physically and it can lead you to be angry and bitter and negative and it can do great harm and distress to your well-being. Now, there are other reasons why people may be depressed or down, but those are three primary reasons. And maybe the reason why some people are depressed is because it's a combination of those things. I don't know. But here's the thing. It's not a sin to get down. But how you respond when you get down might be. It's not a sin to get down. Even if it's some unchecked sin that has led you to this point, it's not a sin to get down. It's not a sin to be discouraged because it's possible that what's going on right now is a spirit convicting your heart. It's not a sin to get down, but how you respond to that might be. Because I've seen people respond to discouragement in very unhealthy ways and they start to lash out at people and they start to get very negative in life. They resign from life and they give up on God's plan. They start using and abusing people and blaming others. And that's kind of where Elijah is right now. Elijah isn't responding well to what's going on in his life. He's blaming God, he's blaming others, he's extremely negative, he's living in this story that he's created in his own mind, he's isolating himself from everyone else and he's resigning from life. But here's the thing, even though Elijah gave up, God didn't give up on him. Even when Elijah gives up, God doesn't give up on him and we see that in 1 Kings 19 verse six. See, Elijah, he goes and he falls asleep and he's ready just to die. He's praying for God to take his life. And this is what happens. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals. By the way, this is the origin of angel food cake. Just want to let you know, okay? Okay, moving on. Uh, and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So basically what this angel does is this angel comes and restores his physical strength first. Don't miss the kindness of God here. This angel doesn't come to condemn Elijah or criticize him or lecture him. Instead, he comes to restore Elijah's strength. And I love the fact that God doesn't get down on Elijah. You know why we know God doesn't get down on Elijah? Because God doesn't answer Elijah's prayer. I mean, I want you to think about it just for a second. Elijah prayed for it not to rain, and God held back the rain. Elijah prayed for a widow's son to be brought back from the dead, and that's exactly what happened. Elijah prayed for fire to come down from heaven, and fire came down from heaven. Elijah prayed for it to rain again, and it rained again. And then Elijah says, God, take my life. I don't want to live anymore. And God says, no, I don't think so. Because God knew what was best for Elijah. And what Elijah needed in this moment was a renewed spirit. See, when we get down, God doesn't get down on us. And so what God gives Elijah is physical care. He gives him a little R&R. He gives him a little rest and refreshment. (laughs) He gives him some food and he lets him rest and take a nap. Because that's what Elijah needed. 
Before God deals with any of the spiritual stuff, he takes care of Elijah's physical needs. And so today, if you're dealing with any type of discouragement, I think that's what God wants you to do as well. Examine your rhythm. Examine the physical rhythm of your life right now and what is that needs to change? Are you physically taking care of yourself? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating the right foods? Do you need to seek medical help for any reason whatsoever? Do you need to seek counseling? What is it that you need right now? Don't put it off because God wants you to take care of your physical needs. And so God takes care of Elijah's physical needs. And then after Elijah gets some strength built back up, God says, okay, now I want you to take a journey. And God sends him to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God. And this is a 40-day journey. Now, my question is, how come God didn't go ahead and just tell Elijah everything he needed to hear before he made this journey? I mean, how come he didn't at this moment when Elijah ate and drank something that God didn't just tie a bow on it and say, okay, this is the rest of the story. This is it. Let's wrap things up and you get on with things. Why did God make Elijah travel 40 days to Mount Horeb? Because even though Elijah had renewed his physical strength after this first encounter, it was going to take a little bit longer for his head and his heart. So he goes on a 40-day journey with God. And when he gets to Mount Horeb, when he arrives there, well, he goes into a cave and he's not sure exactly what to do. And that's when God speaks to him. And look at what happens. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that's an interesting question because God's the one that sent him there. I think what God is trying to get Elijah to do is do some deep soul searching. What are you doing here, Elijah? Like this place in life. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. What is Elijah doing? Just repeating the story that he believes, the story that he's crafted. And here's the thing. You remember a while back, uh, or earlier, we read how Elijah left his servant behind. Elijah's been all alone for a while. He's isolated himself from everybody else. And when you're alone, you can convince yourself of anything. And he's believing the story that he's been replaying in his head over and over and over again. And what Elijah needs is a new perspective. So that's what God gives him. See, Elijah's in a cave in Mount Horeb and God says this to him. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Can you imagine seeing that? But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And with that whisper, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So God says, go out and stand on the mountain and I'm going to pass by. And all of a sudden, there's this huge windstorm. And we living in Oklahoma, we know the power of wind, right? We know how strong and mighty wind can be. And this wind was so strong, the Bible says it split the mountains open. I mean, we're talking about mudslides and everything. I mean, God's power was on display. But it says God wasn't in the wind. And we can understand why God would be in the wind. I mean, the Spirit of God is often associated with wind. I mean, remember the day of Pentecost and all that? But God wasn't in the wind. Then it says that God shook the earth. He sent these massive earthquakes and 
God is often present in earthquakes throughout Scripture. I mean, on Mount Sinai, there were earthquakes. We know in the New Testament church, when the church would pray, the place where they were meeting would be shaken. I mean, God's often present in earthquakes and says here, he wasn't in the earthquake. And then God sent fire. I mean, God's often associated with fire too. Think about the burning bush or fire down from heaven, which Elijah had just experienced. And yet, God wasn't in the fire. Instead, God was in the gentle, soft whisper. Why? Because I think God is reminding Elijah that he's close. See, when you whisper, someone has to be close in order to hear you, right? If somebody else is whispering to you, they can't whisper from across the room and you hear what they're saying. You've got to get close to them. And sometimes you can even be right beside somebody. If they're whispering so softly, you've got to lean in to hear. See, I think what God is doing here is he's saying, Elijah, I've been close all along, but you haven't been leaning in. You haven't been listening. You've lost sight of me, and you've been focused on the wrong stuff. And sometimes when we face hurdles in life, we want God to do all this massive, impressive, big stuff. I mean, we want God to part the Red Sea and knock down the walls of Jericho and slay the giants. That's what we want God to do when we're up against a hurdle. And what God is saying is this is what you need to do. Be still and know that I am God. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to tell me how to play out my plan. Stop trying to be God and be still and lean into me and know that I am God. See, God whispers to us to draw us close. And that's exactly what Elijah needed in this moment. And listen to what God ends up telling Elijah. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Maholalah, to succeed you as prophet. I don't know if that's how you say it, but it's close enough. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. See what God does here? God speaks to Elijah and he says, go back the way you came. In other words, I'm not done with you yet. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a partner. I'm going to give you an assistant, this guy named Elisha. Because Elijah, you've been on your own for way too long. Remember, Elijah left his assistant behind, his servant behind. So he says, I'm going to give you an assistant. And this guy's going to take over for you when you're done. Because you've been trying to do this on your own for way too long. And I think God may be telling us today, share the weight. Share the weight that you're carrying right now. I know it says share your weight. That's not tell people how much you weigh, okay? But share the weight that you're carrying in life right now. Because here's the thing. God renews us through community. And the answer to our discouragement isn't isolation but engagement with others. And we need Christian friends around us who are going to help us carry the heavy loads that we often have to carry in life. That's why in the book of Galatians, Paul writes, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So maybe what you need to do today is find other people who you can share the load with. But then God tells Elijah to go back the way he came And he says, I want you to go back and I want you to appoint new rulers. I want you to go back and I want you to carry out my mission. 
Because what God is trying to tell Elijah is this. My kingdom still has a future. In other words, I'm not done yet, Elijah. Elijah, I'm the God who can send a windstorm like that. I'm the God who can shake the earth. I'm the God who can send fire from heaven. You've seen me work over and over again. Jezebel's not in charge. Ahab's not in charge. I'm the one who allows for kingdoms to exist, and I'm the one that can shut them down whenever I want to. I'm the God who owns the cosmos. Nobody else is in charge but me, and I'm not done with my people yet. My kingdom still has a future. And I wonder if we need to hear the same thing today. In our day and age, there's so much chaos and so much confusion and so much fear. Maybe what we need to do is adjust our focus. Focus on the God who reigns rather than all these lesser gods around us who just are claiming authority but don't really have it. I've mentioned several times my kids and wife and I, we all watch the Olympics together and we would often watch it prime time in the evening and you guys know that Every Olympian wants one of these. This is a genuine gold medal from the Tokyo Olympics replica, okay? (laughs) And every Olympian wants a real one of these. And what was funny is we would watch the primetime video of the Olympians competing, and my kids would get really, really nervous because they weren't sure if, you know, like USA was going to get the gold or not. But here's the thing, because of the time difference, a lot of those events had already taken place, and so I would get notifications on my phone, my watch, that so-and-so had already won the gold medal, and so we'd watch an event, and Allison and I would know that uh, that the USA already got the gold, but my kids wouldn't. They would get so nervous and so upset and be on the edge of their seat, oh, I hope that, I can't watch, I hope that they do it, and we're sitting there the whole time, they've already got the victory. And you know what? I think that's what God does for us. When we're baptized in Christ, the Bible says we are clothed with Christ, meaning we have victory in him so that we can walk around and the world can look at us and the world can say whatever it wants to to us and they can throw hurdles in our path, but we have God's spirit living in us and we can say we've already got the victory. We've already won. And in God's kingdom, it's not about who crosses the finish line first. It's just about getting across the finish line with him. And he'll help us get there as long as we trust in him and lean on him. You guys may recognize the name Derek Redman. He was an Olympian from Great Britain who competed in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. He had just set the world, I'm sorry, just set the record in Great Britain for the fastest 400 meter sprint. And in the qualifying rounds and in the quarterfinals, he won both those, came in first. And in the semifinals and the Olympics, this is what happened. He took off in the race, and he was running great. In fact, the announcers were talking about that it looked as if he was going to win when all of a sudden he pulled his hamstring, and he went down. He said he thought he was shot. The pain was so bad, and he heard a pop. The other racers finished the race, But he got up and tried to finish, and about that time, somebody ran to him on the track. It was his dad, and some of the officials from the Olympics tried to get his dad to go away, but he wouldn't. He stood there beside his son, and together, they crossed the finish line. 
according to the Olympic records, Derek Redman didn't finish that race because he was assisted by somebody else and you can't have any assistance. But Derek Redman has said later, he'd, he said later that his dad, when they crossed the finish line, said, you don't have to prove anything to me. I love you. And you're always a champion in my eyes. God is saying the same thing to you and me today. See, hopelessness is a lie. Because of the empty tomb, because Jesus rose from the dead, hopelessness is a lie. Because no matter what you're facing, no matter what obstacle you're up against, no matter what the world is telling you, you are not hopeless. And so today, be reassured of your victory. Seek God. And whatever you do, don't give up because God isn't finished with you yet. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today and this time we had to open up your word and study it. And Father, we just pray that when we do get discouraged that we will learn to lean in and trust you. We'll find the help that you provide for us in life and that Father, we will remember the victory that we have in your son. No one can take that victory away from us. We have it. And now we just want to cross the finish line with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.